1: Welcome to Philosophy for Our Time. Facts of Assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I
2: think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We
1: debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. Copernicus and Darwin told us that we should be sceptical about feeling that our place in the universe was special But if we look at many of the parameters in the universe like the charge on the electron or the size of the cosmological constant the universe seems to be a strangely Finely tuned place for life. Is that a spectacularly fortuitous accident? has the universe got these values to enable life to exist, or do our theories just make it seem that way? This is what we'll be debating, and joining me to debate the issue, we have Chiara Marletto, quantum computational researcher at the University of Oxford, Professor Bernard Carr, Professor of Physics and uh, Astronomy at Queen Mary College London, and Massimo Piliacci, (laughs) Professor of Philosophy at City University, New York. Why does the universe appear finely tuned for life? Chiara, I'll start with you. There are two senses in which it might appear
0: finely tuned for life. So one is generic biofriendliness of the laws of physics, which was uh, advocated by people like Wigner and Bohm, who said that um, you know the dynamical laws were such they could help processes such as the bringing about you know of, uh, biological adaptations and uh, in in organisms and so on. But that was dismissed by uh, and debunked by the theory of evolution. So we don't have to worry about that any further. There's a second and deeper, more subtle sense in which they uh, are fine-tuned for life. And that's the fact that the laws of physics have certain traits in them, which have three properties. The first is that if they were very slightly varied, the universe would change in its structure dramatically. The second feature is that the way it would change would would be affecting life and therefore our existence. And the third feature is that those traits are not independently explained by the theories, but uh, they are just fixed by observation. So that's a problem, it's a deep problem, and uh, you know saying it's just coincidence is not good enough because coincidence applies to everything and therefore really explains nothing. Likewise saying it's an anthropocentric worry, it's also misguided because that seems to concede a defeat to those people who would like to regard this trait of the laws of physics as a new kind of appearance of design and therefore would like to advocate things like creationism, etc., My position is that actually there's a deeper problem that also affects the most elegant p- proposed solution to this problem, which is the multiverse solution. This problem that I'm talking about is to do with the fact that in order to understand what it means to slightly vary uh, an explanatory theory, a physical theory, And in order to understand the concept of could life have arisen otherwise, we've got to contemplate a wider domain than the actual, which is what currently physics is capable of handling. So we need to develop new tools, new conceptual tools, to accommodate ways of thinking rigorously about these issues and perhaps to improve on the theory of uh, the multiverse, which is a very good step towards solving the problem.
2: Bernard. Well, first of all, we have to distinguish between different types of fine-tuning. What's sometimes called the weak fine-tunings, or the weak anthropic principle, that merely says, given the constants of nature, th- there are selective places in which we have to exist, and selective times where we have to exist, in order that we can be here asking questions. However, there's a deeper idea which says the values of the constants themselves, the constants of physics, have to be fine-tuned so that we are here. And that is, is somewhat more controversial. Now, I have to say that I am an enthusiast for this idea and it does seem to me there is a big problem. You, you know, there is a mystery there. It isn't just a, a coincidence as Chiara as said. But it really comes down to the question of how many of these fine tunings there are and how finely are they actually tuned. You see, in some sense, you might like to think that our final theory of physics would determine all the constants uniquely, which would be fine. But in that case, there will be no room for these special selection effects. So we're sort of assuming in some sense that some of the constants of physics are are contingent. In other words, they're not determined by fundamental theory and then of course the question is if there are fine tunings fine tune for what is it fine tuning for consciousness in general or is it just fine tuned for complexity my own view is that if you look at the arguments for the fine tuning very often they're more to do with complexity so it's not even clear that the existence of the observer is is so crucial but then if you do believe in these fine tunings what actually is the explanation? Why is the universe fine-tuned? And of course you could just say all these, it's just a coincidence, it's, it's an illusion. I, I don't think many people probably take that view. The other more theological view of course is just to say that well God you know, Taylor made the universe for us, so he had like a, a space of parameters of all the constants of physics. And God stuck the pin in, in the right place so that we could arise. Now, I have to say that's perfectly, you know, logical. If you believe in God, it's, it's hard to disprove. But I have to say most physicists don't like that. I think that's one of the reasons why physicists for quite a long time are uncomfortable with the anthropic principle, because it sort of smells of theology. And so the other explanation which Kiara referred to is, is the idea that actually there's a multiverse. That there are lots and lots of universes, all with different values of the constants, and that we that just happen to be in a universe in which the constants are right for life. In that sense, the strong anthropic fine-tunings just reduce to a, a version of the weak anthropic fine-tunings. Because once you've got a multiverse, you have an arena in which you can explain why we are in a particular universe. Now, I have to say my own personal inclination is for the multiverse. And a lot of physicists prefer that because they think it's more satisfying than appealing to God. But I have to say that many other physicists are also rather skeptical about the multiverse because that might be regarded as also a little bit theological because there's no, yet, there's no definite evidence for the multiverse. And so the final issue, which we will, of course, grapple with in this debate is, is the universe real? But actually, to me, the, the, the question is not whether there are other universes. I, personally, I'm prepared to bet there are other universes. But to me, but I think the more interesting question is, are such speculations part of science or is it part of philosophy? Because the problem is there isn't at the moment any evidence for these other universes. And the question is, will there ever be evidence for these other universes?
1: Massimo, would you like to respond?
3: So my position is that, um, first of all, we should ask separate questions. One, is there really a problem? Two, what really the problem is? And three, do we have some reasonable scientific ideas as opposed to non-scientific ideas for solving the problem? And so the first thing is, do, you know, do we have a problem? Maybe. The fine-tuning problem is, is often uh, posed in terms of, well, isn't it an amazing coincidence that we have all these constants that just happen to produce a universe like the one that we have, where complexities uh, arises and where life is arising, and, and, and then, of course, out of life, we're here discussing philosophy and physics. I think that the better way of phrasing the problem is, we don't know what constraints, if anything, the fundamental laws and, and constants in physics. That is the real question, I think that the, uh, the, the entropic part of it is a destruction. And frankly, uh, I, I guess I'm like, I do think that it's a destruction that comes out of the fact that we've got these cosmic sized egos as human mm. beings, like, like, oh, it has to be about us uh, for some reason. The real question is we have laws of physics, we have uh, a number of parameters that seems to be fixed within those laws, why? Why is it that they have those particular, regardless of whether those particular parameters then bring about Homo sapiens or dinosaurs or whatever it is. I mean, this is a world mostly of bacteria, so one could actually reasonably argue from a biological perspective that this all fine-tuning was so that bacteria can have a feast on, on planet Earth, right? The second issue in terms of, well, uh, so why do we have these parameters that are set this way somehow? One possibility is the, the God stuff, as you say. Uh, that's clearly metaphysics of a particular type of the theological metaphysics. There are actually other options, even within metaphysics, that don't require sort of a transcendental God. There is the, the simulation hypothesis, for instance. This is the idea that we're all playing in a video game. Actually, we're all characters in a video game. And somebody set up the parameters of these video games, the laws of physics and the fine tuning stuff, it's actually really the parameters of a video game and somebody's doing this thing. And there's actually a really interesting argument for why this is not as crazy as it sounds. Although that to me doesn't sound that different from God because after all, a video gamer who is capable of producing the entire universe, and eh, I can't distinguish that from God. And then there are so these, the <laughs> yeah. And then there are these, these scientific, or at least scientific sounding answers that we're gonna get into in, in a few minutes and there the question is you know really is it science or how much is it science but i'd like to also eventually get to to this point in the discussion and say when we say that these parameters are fine tuned or however you want to you want to put it we're sort of making an assumption that the parameter space is in fact essentially infinite and flat if if that's true then the probability that it that it would take that particular value is in fact one over infinity, which is negligibly small, and therefore now we have a problem. But we don't know that. We don't know from what statistical distributions or, or, or underlying distributions these variables and these parameters are actually taken from. For all we know, it could very well be that there is only one possible Value for for these parameters, or maybe that there is a small ba- number of values, or maybe that the distribution looks something like, like you know a triangle like this, or whatever. We have no idea. And of course, one of the things that physicists have been trying to do for a, for a while, coming up with a so-called theory of everything, which is another example of large egos at play, um, is precisely to ta- to to tell an answer to that question, right? So oh. Actually, as it turns out, these primaries cannot take an infinite number of values. They can only take a certain number of values. And if it is a small number of values, then it's really no longer a particular surprise or a particular miracle that we got what we, what we got. So we don't have an answer to those kinds of questions now. But when you go through this process, I think you should still keep in mind, A, what the real question is, which is the particular, why do we have the laws of physics basically that we have? And B. That perhaps we're just starting the whole discussion on the wrong footing, that is, by assuming that it could take that these numbers could take any value, when in fact it might not, they might not.
1: So you've seen that we've got quite a diversity of opinions here um, on, on the subject of fine-tuning. It could be coincidence, it could be God, it could be a multiverse, we don't know, and it could be a video game. So let's start with examining what the problem is. And I'd like to start off with the question. Is the universe finely tuned? Let's discuss that first to see if it really is or not. And could its laws have been different? So I'd like to start there. And Kiera, I'd like to start with you. Well, one question
0: is, could the universe be different? And could we still be here debating the, you know, the question? And as we said, I mean, apparently no, because you know, if, if the laws were different, we know that o- I mean, the overwhelming majority of different laws would not support things like, Uh, chemistry and, uh, you know, the possibility of natural selection to take place and for life uh, to arise, etc. Then there is another way of looking at the question, which is, um, could the universe be otherwise, period? And the answer is yes. And there is where the multiverse theory kicks in, because um, the multiverse theory uh, is trying to, you know, as Massimo said, to kind of uh, fill the gap of how could we imagine how it is to very slightly the constants of, of nature. The idea there is that the, the multiverse as a whole wouldn't be fine-tuned, uh, in that it would realize all possible values. And you know, uh, then you use the anthropic argument in order to explain why we see a particular value of the constants, which are the ones that allow for life, and since we are a byproduct of you know, this life-producing process which is natru- natural selection. I just have one point about the um, uh, anthropic point that that Massimo made we talk about life in general and life is a very wide you know class of phenomena of which we are a byproduct uh, worry sorry, about w- the fine w- what do you mean by
3: wide because we sorry, only have life. one example that's what I mean yeah well,
0: right of course there's uh, a problem uh, yeah. Also, what would you, sure right, okay what well but we do have an example and that's mm-hmm. a significant phenomenon in the for in us, the universe sure. not for us if there's a set of things that the laws of physics allow for you know, steam engines and things like that. We know that uh, they are possible. But if life hadn't arrived, you know, haven't hadn't reason, they wouldn't be there in reality. So there's, you know, the set of things that the, ph- the laws of physics allow for is a rich set. And life allows uh, for that set to be explored completely. And that's a physical fact about, you know, what life is capable of. So you and it's a significant thing. So you, are
1: you arguing that the universe is finely tuned then?
0: No, no, I'm not arguing for that. I mean, I'm, I'm, well, I said that there's a problem. Uh, yes, I think there is a problem. I mean, I think that the universe is fine-tuned, we have to find an explanation. But what I was trying to uh, address is, is there an objective reason for caring about life other than the fact that we are a form of life? And my answer is yes, because the laws of physics, as I said, there's an objective fact that they allow for certain transformations to be performed, and not for others. But if life, as we know it, hadn't arisen, most of those transformations would have ha- wouldn't have been brought about. So, so uh, that's my point. And I would like to hear, you know, later on maybe. I'll, I'll get to a it. Comment on that.
1: Okay. Let's let's have Bernard first. Sure.
2: Okay. Well, I would like to respond to some of the points that Asimov made because I thought he made some very important points, and he did raise the question of whether we should actually believe there are significant fine tunings. First thing I would like to say is I completely agree. It's very egocentric when you when you use the phrase um, anthropic. Carter himself, Brandon Carter, admits the word anthropic was a terrible choice. <laughs> yeah. Because what could sound more unfortunate? Um, yes egocentric than that. As I said, I prefer the word complexity. It's not just a question of amoebas, it might just be things like TV sets. We don't really know indeed what, what it's like. All we're saying is there are things in the universe like stars and galaxies and planets and chemistry which couldn't exist if you look at the actual fine tunings. Then there is the question though, we can't know how pervasive life could be. It's all very well to say that life can't exist in this region of parameter space. But we don't know, because we know on Earth, at least, life gets manages to evolve in places we wouldn't expect. And that's a difficult question. But all I would say is that um, there may be many ways that things can be alive, but I think it's probably fair to say there are many more ways they can be dead. But then the other... even more important question, I would say, is the, the question you raise: of what is the distribution of these parameters? Because if we don't have a theory for the distributions, we simply can't begin to do a precise calculation. I mean, let's take the most famous example, which is the cosmological constant. The cosmological constant we now have known for 20 years is causing the universe to accelerate. But we have no idea why it has the value it has. And in principle, your first bet as to what the value would be, would be 10 to the 120 times bigger than it actually is. So this is the biggest fine-tuning we know of in nature, a factor of 1 in 10 to the 120. Now Weinberg gave an explanation for this based on the anthropic argument, which was simply that if lambda was too big, galaxies couldn't form. And that in some sense was an anthropic prediction because he made this argument before they actually discovered the acceleration of the universe. But how you actually assess that mathematically is very difficult. Massimo is quite correct. You can just make the assumption that it's a uniform distribution and then you say, wow, it's 1 in 10 to 120. But we've no idea for believing that it is a uniform distribution. On the other hand, if you were to say the distribution predicted by physics is going to be close to what it actually is, that's not satisfactory either because you're just saying it just happens to be that the physics predicts a value which is what it's required to be. With all these coincidences, you could always say it just happens there is a final theory which predicts the right constants. But in that case, what is the reason for that sort of mega coincidence that the right theory happens to be one which will give you life? So that doesn't solve it either. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the question... How many of these fine tunings are there and how finely is the fine tuning? Is it, is it to 1% or is it to an order of magnitude? But I completely agree with Massimo. There's no way you can do a rigorous precise calculation and say the probability of the universe is one in a billion because we just, we just don't know. I would only say that from my perspective, the number of coincidences and the, in the f- degree of fine tuning is sufficiently large that there really is a conundrum. There's something fishy going on. <laughs> and we somehow got to explain it. But I mean, I don't, I, I could, I would not quantitatively try and say how fishy it is. So That's I'm gonna, a, go yeah, on. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm
3: gonna argue that things are even worse, actually, in, in some sense. So first of all, actually, in, in response to what you were saying yeah. a, a, minute, a minute ago, is, you know, is life a significant phenomenon? Well, significance is, some, uh, is a subjective judgment. Uh, we can say yeah. it exists, it is a phenomenon, and therefore, as scientists were interested in explaining the variety of physical and biological phenomena in the, in the universe, so fine. That's, that is a, an interesting question in and of itself. Is it a significant question? Well that, since we don't have an answer actually, a good scientific answer to that question, that's why I, I try to push away from the idea that this sh- we should be naming this anything like anthropic or even fine tuning, and then we should just focus on the basic problem which is where do the laws of physics come from? Or you know why are they the way they are? And here's why I'm, reason- I, I'm saying this, we don't know how pervasive life is in the universe. We have no idea. Anybody tells you otherwise is bullshitting. It's just not, you know, we don't know. It could be very pervasive. It could be that almost every planet uh, out there actually has some form of life. It could be that we are the only ones out, he- out there. Uh, we have no idea, okay? There's, there's just no, because there's no base rate. We only have an example of one. And on an example of one, any good statistician will tell you you're better, you better off not making any predictions. You just have to wait at least for a second example, and then we'll figure, you'll start thinking, figuring out. But
1: Massimo, if I could interrupt you, I mean, yeah. it's, it's one thing I agree talking about life, but what about talking about the laws of physics?
3: Right, so, the laws, so that is, that's why I'm arguing that that is the problem. And therefore, calling it fine-tuning It's sort of immediately, I think in, in some sense, it, it actually gives too much to the theological side. Because as soon as you call it fine-tuning, it's like, ah, there must be some kind of intelligence going on or some, something, funny, something fishy going on, right? I think we need to be careful about how we label things because immediately our way of thinking is affected by the way in which we label things. I mean, we're human beings uh, and we respond to analogies, to metaphors, to uh, labels and so on and so forth. So that's one thing. The other point that I wanted to make is, is that about the, st- the statistical distribution. Um, I think it's worse than just saying, you know, we, don't, we cannot make a precise estimate of how un- unlikely our universe is. I don't think we can make any estimate at all because we don't have a baseline, again. And let me g- g- uh, give you an example, again, from biology. So there are some things, there's a mathematical theory of population genetics that ma- ma- makes a certain number of predictions about how you know, biological populations should evolve. If the parameters of population genetic equations were completely unconstrained, that is we, if we had no idea uh, where, how to set some of those parameters, we could simulate all sorts of, of biological phenomena that actually don't exist and never will exist. Okay? The only reason we don't do that, we can do better than that, is because there are some physical constraints, there are some biochemical constraints, we know certain things about the reality of life as it happens on Earth, that immediately narrows down the number of parameters and the range of these parameters, so that you can actually build a reasonable theory of population genetics. We don't have, yet at least, I'm not saying we will never have, but we don't have yet, the equivalent in fundamental physics, and that I think is where the problem is. Now, you could say, well, I I like your idea of, well, even if we narrow down the the statistical distribution, then we'll still have the problem of where that statistical distribution comes from. Yes, well, it starters all the way down, isn't it? I mean, the problem is that at some point, there is gonna be something like a brute fact. There is going to be something that you hit the bottom and you say, I gotta start there. Because if you keep asking where does that come from and where does that come from and where does that come from, you you, you end up either in an infinite regress you're never done, okay? But bef- way before you get to that infinite regress, you're gonna run out of empirical evidence. I, I'm gonna bet on that one. Or you have to say, well, at some point, we'll have to take certain facts as raw facts, as you know, this is just the way things are, and from there, you build a theory. Now, where do we wanna stop It's an interesting question, it's an open question for physicists to answer in physics and for biologists to answer in biology. But at some point, I suspect, we have to have a choice, either we go on forever, uh, or we have to ground our theories into something and just take that as, as a fact. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers?
2: and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
1: So I'd, I'd like to move us, our, our debate along a little bit to how we might solve the puzzle of apparent fine tuning, if you like, by asking if the multiverse perhaps is a solution. So Bernard, I know that you would love to go first here,
2: so we'll start with you. <laughs> well, the point about the multiverse you, I should make clear right at the outset, is the word multiverse is used in many different ways. There are different types of multiverse and you need to distinguish between these before you actually start making dogmatic statements about it. The simplest type of multiverse is what Tegmark calls level one. It's simply the multiverse which says that beyond the universe we can observe, the universe be- begun with the big bang 14 billion years ago, we can't see further than 14 billion light years roughly but there must be a universe that exists beyond that. So it's simply saying there are patches of the universe which we can't observe. And you might choose to call those other universes. I think that's pretty indisputable. But the more controversial claim is that there are also different universes which are not actually spatially connected to our universe. And the basic idea is that if you have any any theory for the Big Bang, because ultimately physicists want to explain where the Big Bang came from. Well, if you have a a model which produces one Big Bang, obviously, in principle, it can produce other Big Bangs. And so cosmologists and particle physicists have come up with all sorts of ways in which they can produce many universes. You can have cyclic universes. You can have... I, I won't even go through them all because it would take you long to go through them all. But it's important to say that some of these suggestions come from cosmologists and some come from particle physicists. Because particle physicists also in their own way have produced other ideas of the multiverse. Now the third type of multiverse is the, is the parallel worlds of, of Everett. The many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And the, f- the fourth version of the multiverse is even more controversial which comes from Max Tegmark who says that yes. basically Anything which can exist exist mathematically must exist somewhere. Now that's very controversial. I don't personally uh, uh, find that idea attractive. So there are these four different levels of the multiverse. The first, I would say, is pretty well inevitable. The second is really what's interesting. And the third one is to do with quantum theory, which is, no one understands quantum theory anyway, and and the fourth. (laughs) fantasy. So, so then let's really focus on the question of whether there are other universes of type 2, other big bangs. The, the first point to say is that physicists have independently come up with theories for the multiverse. That's to say cosmologists on the one hand and particle physicists on the other. You've heard a lot about M theory and one of the predictions of M theory is that there can be lots of vacuum states called the string landscape and things like that. But I also have to say that one of the reasons the multiverse became so popular was because it was realized this was a way in which you can explain the fine tunings. Because if you have all these different universes with all these different values of the constants, then it simply becomes a selection effect that we have to be in one of the universes which is conducive for life. So in some sense, the multiverse does provide a possible explanation for this mystery which was already existing. I'm saying that because I don't want to give the impression that people only thought up the multiverse in order to explain the fine tunings. There were independent reasons to believing in the multiverse. And, uh, and that's why many of us at least like to connect these two ideas.
1: Some people, not necessarily me, some people claim that multiverses might be a convenient way of getting around the question of fine tuning, simply because you could have any possible combination there Do you have any arguments to combat that?
2: Yes, I mean, there are many criticisms of the multiverse, or I should say many criticizers of the, of, the, of the multiverse. And the, the main criticism is simply that we have no observational evidence for these other universes. So it's fine as a speculation, but, but there's actually no evidence for them, because we, by definition we can't see something which is beyond the horizon. And therefore, people say, this is doomed forever to be mere philosophy. Sorry, not mere philosophy, doomed to be philosophy. (laughs) Thank you. And uh, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it wouldn't be part of normal science. But I can only say that I harbor the hope that there are ways eventually of getting evidence for the multiverse. And maybe we'll come on to that in the third part of the session. Until that is the case, I I take the view that these ideas exist in a sort of a grey area between what I call cosmology and metacosmology. It's not proper science, but it's, it's, it's in a state of purgatory where it hasn't yet be, been promoted by evidence because until you have actual evidence for it, it isn't proper science. So I agree with the criticisms, but nevertheless, I would take the view that any explanation is better than none, even if it's not going to be classified as science, and, and,
3: and that's why I'm, I'm keen on the idea.
1: Massimo, would you like to respond?
3: Sure. Um, <laughs> Philosophers have come up with a, uh, something called the principle of plenitude, which actually predates Tegmark's uh, uh, mathematical principle. And the principle of te- uh, plenitude basically says that whatever he- is uh, logically coherent exists. And logical coherence is broader even than mathematical coherence, arguably, depending on how you like you, you look at the relationship between mathematics and logic. So it's like, oh wow, there's all these, plenty of stuff, there's an, you know, an infinite number of things that actually do it, and they mean actually exist, not potentially exist, but that to me gets to the question. The difference between something that is compatible with a mathematical description or mathematical theory or compatible with a logical description or logical theory and something that actually is, in fact, the case, right? So when I hear things like, for instance, string theory predicts a certain number, you know, a different number of universes, well, not really, right? What it does is it's, it's compatible, it's mathematics. Is compatible with the existence of a large number of differently arranged universes. That's not the same as making a prediction, because in order to make a prediction, you have to somehow some, somehow bridge the gap between the mathematical theory and the empirical evidence. And that's where that's where you uh, you know your discomfort shall, shall we say with the multiverse I think is justified, right? Because there is the question, you know, the fundamental issue in science is. It, everything stops at the buck of the empirical evidence. If there is no empirical evidence, it's not science. End of story. Even though a good number of physicists these day are beginning to talk about something that worries me particularly, which is called post-empirical science. Okay. Post-empirical science is uh, something that to me sounds a lot like metaphysics. And I don't have a problem with metaphysics, but the physicists usually do have a problem with metaphysics. Right? So uh, what I think might be helpful here is to make a distinction. Not, there are no sharp distinctions between physics and metaphysics, I think, or between physics, uh, you know, science and philosophy necessarily. But there are distinctions that I think need to be made. And one of the problems why I think so many philosophers and so many physicists are uncomfortable with both string theory and the multiverse is precisely because, especially when it comes down to uh, books published for the general public, that distinction is completely blurred. If you read The Elegant Universe by Brian Greene, I did, and when I read it, I got the impression that, oh, this is, this is physics, this is, you know, the physicists have in fact sent, basically settled this issue or close to settle this issue, nowhere near. And the reason no, it's nowhere near it is precisely because there's a large gap at the moment between the empirical evidence and the theory. And as long as we're clear on that, then I don't think there is any problem in speculating in going around and saying, well, it could be this way, this is, this is a possible way of thinking about it. And if you're telling me, not you personally necessarily, but if you're telling me, well, you know, string theory has been around for only 30 years and we need another century to go around before we can find out a way to test it empirically, I'm okay with that because I don't sign checks for research grants.
0: As you both said, um, I think the best, I mean, the, the deepest problem about the multiverse explanation is that we don't know how to count well in first place, we don't know how to populate the other universes, so we don't have uh, a good enough set of theories which would allow us to imagine how they, they could be and what they are about. The other thing is that we don't know how to count them, and if there are infinitely many of them, placing one measure or placing another one uh, gives completely different answers as to whether there is a problem or there isn't a problem. So, contrasting it with quantum physics, where there is, under some interpretation, the Everett interpretation, there is a multiverse there, the basic difference is that in the case of quantum theory, there's a natural measure which is explained by the theory, and it's placed on this multiverse, and that's unequivocal. So there's no ambiguity as to how do we count the various branches of this multiverse. Whereas in the cosmological context, the multiverse has to be dressed with an additional theory which allows us to know how to count. Otherwise, we don't know what we are talking about. I mean, there was also an interesting argument by a physicist who was called De- Dennis Sharma. He was a cosmologist. He, he presented the case that um, if you actually worry about one single constant of nature, then you get some conclusions out of the anthropic argument uh, combined with the multiverse. But if you worry about a number of constants, and there are many of them, the more you increase the number, the further you get from actually having solved the problem. In fact, you would get to the opposite conclusion of not having solved the problem by applying the same sort of reasoning as you do in the one constant case. So we've got to develop new tools, basically, to address these questions.
1: Which brings me to the last part of the discussion, which is how are we going to solve this puzzle? Chiara, any ideas? uh, By
0: the way, I have a point about things that are not empirically accessible, like dinosaurs, for instance, they're not empirically accessible, but... They constitute part of an explanation of how life has evolved. We have fossil evidence for them, but we don't see dinosaurs. I call we that don't
3: em- I call that empirical accessibility. Uh, well. Uh, yeah, I think I think any paleontologist would say dinosaurs are not live no, we dinosaurs.
0: Well, not live dinosaurs, <laughs> though. Well, you have a theory of how they function, but you know, there's a difference between a dinosaur and a fossil.
3: By that, by that standard, we don't have empirical accessibility to stars and galaxies because exactly we can't go that's touch my them. point.
0: I mean, there are elements of a e- scientific explanation which. Are not directly accessible and yet they are crucial to select one thing that you have to see in an experiment so i'm just pointing out that if a theory has some elements that are not empirically accessible it's not a problem the problem here is that the part that's not empirically accessible seems to be too large. Now let me and give you an
3: example, sorry, a counter example using the, 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 the dinosaurs. So do we have empirical accessibility to the fact that there, there were you know, reptiles of a particular type that were walking the earth a certain number of millions of years ago? I think that's by any standard of empirical accessibility the answer there is yes, we have the fossil record, we can date those rocks, we can reconstruct the anatomy, we can make comparisons, etc., etc. Now something that we did not until recently have empirical accessibility to concerning the dinosaurs was their color. Okay, what, what colors are they? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you grew up with looking at dinosaur books, you see them all these boring gray thing that, you know. Just. That is a question that until a few years ago, had, we had no empirical accessibility whatsoever, which means that any paleontologist that was going around saying, oh, well, dinosaurs were clearly blue, uh, was talking out of his horse. Uh, now we do. Because now we we actually have some examples of dinosaur feathers and dinosaur skin that have been preserved well enough that we have an idea of the color of at least some species of dinosaurs. So now we have empirical accessibility. Before that point, before that recent discovery, you could have speculated all you you wanted.
0: You could have have an explanation for why dinosaurs should have been, say, green. And that could involve, you know, the environment in which they lived, etc. You don't really have to have direct empirical evidence of the greenness being dinosaurs. Sure. You, you could have an independent explanation and sure. of course that should be testable in some sure. way but you know you need not be able to test every element of a scientific correct. theory. No you're you're to, correct to for it but to that be. So I, I was just clarifying this but I think we agree on the on the fact that the multiverse needs improvement as But to I
3: think it's much worse than the dinosaurs that's what I'm trying to get. Oh no getting. sure it is, so
0: it is yeah it's, it's like true. Yes. <laughs> <I> yes. <laughs> okay. Like orders
3: of magnitude. I okay. agree yes. Okay.
1: dinosaur like orders of magnitude yes. Bernard, how are we gonna find any evidence for multiverse as an explanation? Well,
2: I mean, having cautioned in my last remarks that we, we have to allow for the fact there is no evidence at the moment for these other universes, I would like to sort of n- take a more optimistic note now and say that I see no reason in principle why there shouldn't potentially be evidence. And in fact, people are already looking for evidence. now. What do I mean by this? Well, one possibility is that if there were other universes, they could have bumped into each other when they were young and and made scars in the microwave background. And so people are looking for scars in the microwave background, which will be evidence of other universes. These, if you like, are the the dinosaurs, the analog of the dinosaurs. Now, there's no definite evidence for that, but the point is people are looking. Another possibility is that there could be huge flows, what are called dark flows in the universe, which are produced by something beyond the visible horizon. Another possibility, uh, might, we might end up having wormholes and, and discovering wormholes like in, you know, in Interstellar the movie and going off to these other universes. And then from particle physics, there's, there's possibilities. I mean, even if you can't look for the other universes, y- you might be able to, Confirm the theories, like M-theory, which are predicting the other universes, and maybe at the Large Hadron Collider, they will get evidence for some features of M-theory, extra dimensions, or, or whatever it is. So I'm more optimistic than uh, certainly George Ellis, who, who I've argued with about this, and maybe even yeah, yeah. more optimistic mm-hmm. than Asimov. But I have to say, at the moment, we don't know, so it could all fizzle out, and my hopes could turn out to be empty. But I think at least in principle it's testable. And I think that's the crucial thing about science. Not that it's necessarily being tested now, but it can in principle be tested. And I would argue that actually in principle it can be tested. And that's why you should regard it as being science, or at least on the borders of science. But I thought Massimo made a very important point when he talked about the time scale on which a theory is tested, because M-theory hasn't sold everything in 20 years. Well, Actually, if you look at modern science and modern physics, the time scale you have to wait for ideas to be verified is long. I mean, a few months ago, there was all the excitement about gravitational waves you remember being detected? Well, they were predicted exactly one hundred years ago. People started looking for them fifty years ago, but we had to wait a hundred years before we had the evidence. Black holes they were predicted also one hundred years ago they were only discovered fifty years ago so we're now used to the idea in science that you have to wait a long time. And now that might be bad news if you're a PhD student or even a postdoc because you have to you know, do things on a certain timescale, but that's the way things are going. So I think theories have to be f- verifiable or falsifiable, but you have to be quite generous in how much you al- time allow you for allow for it.
1: Yes. I'm going to stop our debate here okay. on that optimistic note. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. We would love to know who you agree with, and you can carry on the discussion by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag Here. If you think a multiverse sounds likely, then we recommend Bernard Carr's solo talk, Consciousness and Time, available now on the IAI TV player. Or, if you're as worried about the end of empirical science as Massimo, then check out his talk, After the End of Evidence. If you've enjoyed this, then please subscribe in the Philosophy for Our Times podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher for more big ideas on the go. We would love to hear your feedback, so please do get in touch on podcast at iai.tv. Tune in next week for a debate exploring whether life goals are the key to fulfilment.